This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. Well, as we've heard, a massive week on the international stage with undoubtedly more to come. The question we're seeking to address right now is how this plays out in our politics, our pre-election politics. How is this volatility likely to influence our judgments? The informal campaign's well underway amidst pretty strong criticisms of Prime Minister Morrison's tactic to effectively weaponise national security issues in recent weeks, particularly his attempts to cast Labor as soft on China ahead of the election. And this is all prior, of course, to dramatic developments in Ukraine. The question is whether the government and key ministers will step the rhetoric up further and also how Labor now chooses to play this at an incredibly important juncture. Two men are joining me now with many years combined experience in judging local attitudes and domestic politics as well as their interplay with international relations. I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Costello, the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, who was opposition leader Kim Beasley's chief of staff at the time of Tampa and September the 11th, and who did a fascinating podcast on Ukraine for the Saturday paper recently, and Paul Kelly, editor-at-large on The Australian, whose new work for the Lowy Institute is Morrison's Mission, How a Beginner Reshaped Australian Foreign Policy. Welcome to you both. Good to be with you, Geraldine. The truly absorbing question in this is surely, generally at times of security crisis, voters turn to the existing government whom they know after all, rather than toy with an opposition whom they may not know as well. Now, do you both think it'll play out like that this time around? I mean, Michael Costello, you have acute memories of this and of big changes of mind. (laughs) Uh, How are you thinking about it? Well, my memory of the whole Tampa incident and how it played out politically is that, oddly enough, during the course of the campaign, our polling showed the last week that the Tampa incident had stopped having the dramatic effect it had. But in the course of that last week, they... it the whole Tampa incident came back to the fore with the children overboard affair. And as so often happens, certain issues are going to benefit the Liberal National Party and certain issues are going to benefit the uh, Labor Party. And the whole conversation turned to children overboard. Some people thought this would benefit Labor, but what it meant was the last three and a half days of the campaign, and those days absentee voting was either non-existent or pretty minor, uh, when everyone's making up their mind, was all about the children overboard affair. Mm. And remember, the big difference then, I think, to now is this. John Howard announced that Australia was going into Afghanistan with the Americans, I think the day before he called the election. And that really focused the minds of Australian voters it really was personal. It affected us. We were getting involved with the Americans in a war. 
And it's a bit different in this case. I do not think we'll be sending forces to the Ukraine. Just remind me, if you would, please, how many, what elapsed between, what time elapsed between Tampa and September the 11th and the election? Oh, I, I couldn't give you those dates exactly, but, but Tampa uh, um, uh, was qu- quite a bit earlier Yeah, on. it was, wasn't it? It was about six months uh, earlier. Qu- yeah, yeah, quite a bit earlier on. And, and quite honestly, much of the effect of it had faded. What really r- r- ramped it back up again was the uh, impact of going in, calling, announcing our forces going into Afghanistan with the Americans on one day, and I think it was the next day, calling the election. And, uh, but it is a different circumstance on this occasion. But, okay, but they did race back to the perceived authority of John Howard, didn't they? And yet they had in Kim Beasley a man who, had, who was very visibly a man of very comfortable with the, with the defence establishment and, you know, very comfortable with military matters. So that's what intrigues me is attitudes to authority at times like this. Well, I think that's right. And I think all around the world, after September 11, you saw people gather behind their governments. It, you know, it, it really reversed the course of uh, politics in many, many countries. And it was very, very vivid, vivid in Australians' mind uh, when, they, when they came to the election. It wasn't something that had happened a couple of years beforehand. Mm. How do it you... was a dominant issue. Yeah. Paul Kelly, how do you see it? I think the starting point, Geraldine is to say that every national security crisis, every international crisis, plays out differently according to its nature. Now, what we're likely to see is the media dominated by this Ukraine crisis for some time. And I think that will help Scott Morrison. Uh, The tendency, of course, is that when you get a national security crisis, it will help a coalition government. And that's what we have at the moment. And, of course, Morrison has been putting national security up in lights for the past three years. So, in a sense, he's playing on very familiar territory. Having said that, it's important to point out there's no fundamental difference between Labor and the government in relation to uh, Ukraine or in relation to uh, China. Um, uh, But uh, I think the other point to make is that I've seen a lot of superficial comparisons between this crisis and what happened in 2001 in terms of 9-11. Now, this is what I mean when I say each international crisis is different. In 9-11, we saw the United States attacked. Our closest ally was attacked. This was a strategic and emotional issue, not just for America, but for Australia. We saw the ANZUS Treaty invoked. We saw Australia commit forces to Afghanistan. We saw Australian concern about Islamic militants uh, playing out in this country and in Southeast Asia. So that whole experience was very, very different to the Ukraine. So while I think this crisis will assist Scott Morrison, I warn people against thinking that it's just a repeat of 9-11 
when it comes to the domestic political consequences. Mm. It is, incidentally, I've just, we've just Googled, the uh, August was the Tampa crisis, August of 2000. Um, the election was called in October and, of course, and was the 10th of November was the election in 2001 and, of course, September the 11th occurred that day. So that just gives us context. Um Look, it's very interesting. That, I mean, I think probably people, it's works in progress right now, people trying to work out how on earth they they feel about all this. But it is interesting, Michael Costello, that um, I heard a webinar the other day with uh, Peter Lewis from Essential Media talking about the interesting results very so far uh, that they've been getting about attitudes to authority. It's almost like at a time of great uh, consternation and insecurity, the last thing you want is a perception of politics being played with national security and that this might actually backfire, which I think I'll come to Paul Kelly in a moment. I think he's worried about that too. I mean, yeah, do, how do you imagine people are, are seeing these dramatic stories? This is before we get to China, the dramatic stories from Europe. Well, I think people be extremely alarmed and very concerned uh, because we have a significant Ukrainian population. And the idea that one country, for whatever reason, simply surges across the border and says it's going to decapitate the government of another country is something that is, is alarming. But in a sense, it's playing out on our television, which is important, but it's not hitting us directly, uh, other than, of course, our Ukrainian community, which is important. But it's not, as Paul says, it's not what it was with September 11 when ANZUS was called on uh, and we got involved in the fight very directly. So I think there is that significant difference. I think the essential, you mentioned essential, I think they also, in their polling, came up with a rather surprising, at least to me, uh, maybe not to Paul, but to me, result on the question of who do you trust most to deal with China? And to everyone's surprise, the answer was Labor. It was a more a sophisticated problem that needed to be dealt with rather than become the subject of basically you know, pretty horrid uh, false accusations of effectively uh, lack of patriotism. You do seem, Paul Kelly, in your writing last week to be concerned about the nature of the government approach. Well, I was certainly very critical of Scott Morrison's immediate campaigning in the parliament against Labor calling people Manchurian candidates and suggesting that um, he wanted to use the China issue as a wedge to argue Labor couldn't be trusted on national security. What I've argued for some time in relation to China is that the bipartisan Liberal Labor position has been a national asset for this country. Can you imagine the trouble we'd be in uh, dealing with China if, in fact, there was a fundamental split between the two parties? So I think this, um, this reality of a bipartisan position on the fundamentals is very important. That's not to say, of course, that both sides don't have their own appreciation and instincts about foreign policy. But I think it's very important, <clears throat> it'll be fascinating to see the way Morrison now plays things after the invasion of Ukraine, because 
I think what he ought to do is simply focus on governing. What he ought to do is focus on Australia's response uh, in national security terms, in terms of the sanctions, in terms of standing with allies, and that he should not try and play politics by discrediting Labor. I think at the end of the day, that's only likely to hurt him. Now, it's fascinating to see the way he responded yesterday, because what he's done yesterday is he's put the focus on China. Uh, and he's, he's put up in headlights China's attitude towards the invasion. And clearly what he wants to do is not just attack President Putin over this outrageous invasion, but he wants to put pressure on China in terms of the way China's responding. Now, I understand that, and I think that's fair enough. But the test I'll apply when it comes to dealing with the Prime Minister is whether his focus is simply on governing in national security terms or whether he wants to fabricate differences that don't exist between the government and Labor. That's the real test for me. And do you think that voters will be able to discern which is which? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty important question. I guess what I'd say about that is that sometimes when Scott Morrison is playing domestic politics, he overdoes it. He goes too far, he exaggerates, and when he does that, he can often look desperate. Now, that's a mistake for any Prime Minister. A Prime Minister during a national security crisis must speak with calmness and must speak with authority. That is really fundamental. Now, I think we can see Morrison trying to do that over the last couple of days. And that means, of course, you've got to rein in and discipline your um, more robust instincts just to wage a political campaign against your opponent. Mm. See, Michael Costello, I've got... Yes, go on. Uh, Paul, I agree with what you're saying, but I wonder if he can. His political success has been grounded on... Uh, massive attack rather than any subtlety. His instinct is always to find the issue that divides, at least it seems to me, having watched him uh, for several years. His instinct is always, it seems to me, to find how can I drive a wedge into some issue and uh, exploit it very, very loudly, bellowing. Uh, I, I wonder if it continues to work. I understand exactly what you're saying, Michael, um, uh, and I think that is Scott Morrison's instinct. But this is, this is a big test for him. This is a big global crisis, and clearly he wants to speak to the Australian people about this. He's speaking to the people each day. We're, an, we're announcing decisions in relation to sanctions. So it'll be a fascinating test, I think, of his character and instincts. Will. Indeed, character was the very thing that I was thinking is going to come to the fore. So, so how does Labor play it? I shouldn't say play, but how does Labor conduct itself now, Michael Costello, ideally? Well, I think uh, that at the moment, Albanese seems to me to be doing exactly the right thing. Um, he's not seeking to in any way exploit this, and I think there are things he could. Um He's supporting the Prime Minister. He's speaking calmly and logically. 
and he's supporting the uh, Ukrainian government and people against uh, this vicious invasion. So I think he just he just needs to, as Paul said, the Prime Minister needs to do, Albo uh, needs to calmly and in a confident fashion set out the right positions, and he's doing that at the moment. For example, he, uh, I think uh, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, attacked China for its, its response to this invasion. Uh, Anthony Albanese came out and also talked about China, the lack of a strong position from China, and I think that was the right thing to do. I think he's more than capable of managing this with calmness and authority, uh, even though he'll be a minor voice because it's always the government that's uh, that's uh, the predominant focus of the media, quite, in, quite understandable. In that essential poll, 61% agreed that Australia's relationship with China is a complex relationship to be managed. Correct. Um, 26% only, by comparison, thought Australia's relationship with China is a threat to be confronted. When people were asked which party they would most trust to build a relationship with China in Australia's best interests, 37% said Labor, 28% said the Coalition, but this is crucial. 34% were unsure. So that does suggest to you, Paul and Michael, that there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot underway right now, people to be influenced right now. Of course. Look, I have to say, Geraldine, <clears throat> um, I do think that um, Scott Morrison has been very successful in both policy and political terms over the last three years, orchestrating a national response of resilience and resistance towards China's uh, political intimidation and economic coercion of Australia. And this has been at the heartland of Morrison's foreign policy, and it's involved deepening the alliance with the United States, strengthening our networks in the Indo-Pacific and developing more Australian capability. Um, and I think the really interesting thing is um, a couple of analysts have suggested that China might have expected Australia to buckle under the pressure and economic coercion that China put on us. Well, that didn't happen. In fact, we got stronger and we looked stronger. And you've referred to the essential poll, but I'd also refer to the Lowy Institute poll on yeah. China, which I think has been particularly interesting. And what this showed was that Australian attitudes towards China have been transformed in recent years. Right. And that the Australian public now view China not in terms of economic opportunity, but in terms of national security danger. And I think that's the fundamental transition. Okay. Look, we have to go. Uh, look, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Very interesting discussion. Michael Costello and Paul Kelly. Thanks, Geraldine. Thank and uh, Paul Kelly's new work for the Lowy Institute is Morrison's Mission, How a Beginner shape, Reshaped Australian Foreign Policy. In just a moment, uh, continuing our thoughts, what can we learn from the Cold War? Forgetting the lessons of history is supposed to condemn you to repeated mistakes, and that little truism might well apply to the predicament facing the US and its allies right now, according to a respected American scholar who joined me from his home just before the invasion began this week. Professor Hal Brands, B-R-A-N-D-S, 
argues that America needs to look at the history of the Cold War for lessons on how to be successful in the future, that it's a vast repository of information, he writes, about long-term competition, that that victory was a marathon, not a sprint, highlighting the very muscle memory required now, he says, in suddenly relearning about the reappearance of dangerous foes of the past. Professor Brands is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, the author, too, of a new book called The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. And I welcomed him. Thank you for having me. Um, During the Cold War... Competition was a way of life, which certainly seems to be the case uh, uh, now. We're entering that anyway. What are the key lessons we can learn from that time? And I might ask you a sort of sub-question. Is it particularly pertinent given given these extraordinary moments we're living through? Well, I think it is pertinent. And uh, the one lesson I think I would highlight that is particularly salient today is that we shouldn't think that competition will be easy or that it will be free of cost, risk, and danger. I think what we're learning right now uh, in, in the crisis involving Ukraine and Russia is that geopolitical competition is not some abstract thing that only happens uh, in the minds of strategists. It, it plays out in the real world with the danger of, of conflict and tension and even war. And so I think it's important that the United States and its allies work to contain the ambitions of autocratic regimes of China and Russia, because I think their ambitions would be fatal to the world order that the United States and its allies have worked to construct. But we shouldn't imagine that this will be easier, it will be painless. Uh, yes, look, it, your, your book and, and the article that I read on it distills it all so terribly well. If I can put it really colloquially, we're out of practice at this. Or, or, or the West is out of practice at this, isn't it? That, that's exactly right. Um, the reason that uh, great power rivalry sometimes feels unfamiliar to us or we talk about it as though it's something new is that we've essentially had a holiday from history over the past 30 years. And so after the end of the Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the world really did enjoy a generation or more uh, in which great power tensions were lower than they had been at any time in the modern era. And so a lot of the lessons that we learned about how to compete with dangerous rivals, we had the luxury of forgetting. But but unfortunately, that era is now over. And so if we want to understand what's going to be necessary to succeed in this era, we're going to have to go back and refamiliarize ourselves with the history of the Cold War. Um, it is interesting, though, that as it's sort of dawning on everyone, uh, just how we may be in some sort of new world order, uh, people are writing about it. Jared Baker, for instance, who, who writes quite sharply, writing in the Wall Street Journal, put it really broadly the other day. Victory in the Cold War bred complacency, a loss of a defining sense of purpose. We, meaning the US, failed to meet the most basic needs of many citizens for economic security, opportunity and belonging, and in the process stoked resentment and political backlash. So in a way, he's placing this in a broader perspective, I think, than merely, um, you know, great interpower rivalry, but a a real sort of commentary on the world that uh, has been allowed to be created. 
Well, there's no doubt that the Cold War, even though it saw fierce and often vicious political debates within the United States and other countries, did provide a certain sense of identity uh, to Americans and perhaps even a certain sense of of cohesion in the sense that it was it was at least obvious what the United States was trying to achieve in the world during the Cold War, the containment of Soviet power and the strengthening of the free world. After the Cold War ended, again, we, we had the luxury of drifting uh, a little bit. And so it, w- it became much less apparent to your average citizen what exactly the United States was trying to achieve in the world and, and why that agenda was worthy of support. So the the bad news is that we're now back in an era where we can see quite clearly what the threats to the security and prosperity of the United States and the democratic world are. Uh, I suppose the good news is that this is already producing a bit more of a consensus in the United States. And so if you look over the past two presidencies, there's been a strong degree of continuity in terms of thinking about China as the primary threat to American interests. And I think you increasingly see that reflected in the public at large. After the Cold War, uh, you, you say, when you look back, multiple presidents promoted democracy and free markets overseas, which often did very much benefit America as well, people will be saying, my listeners will be saying. But how important was that, do you say, to the stability uh, of the world order, specific, especially now that we're looking from our current perspective? Well, I don't think we should lose sight of a lot of the good consequences of American foreign policy after the end of the Cold War. If you go back to the early 1990s, it was quite common to predict that the world was about to enter uh, an era of really vicious instability, and you would get German revisionism and Japanese revisionism, and East Asia and and Central Europe would return to the battle days of multipolar competition. And and that didn't happen. Uh, In fact, we entered another generation of relative geopolitical stability and also a period in which global prosperity rose, the democracy spread, human rights became more widely respected, and, and bad things like nuclear proliferation remained relatively limited. A lot of that had to do with the very active global role that the United States continued playing after the end of the Cold War. I don't want to make it sound like American policymakers got everything right. That certainly wasn't the case. And we can all identify our, our list of biggest errors of omission or, or commission uh, since the end of the Cold War. But I, I think one of the reasons why there's so much at stake right now is that since the end of the Cold War and really going back to the end of World War II, the United States and its allies have done a really remarkable job of creating a world that in many ways is more benign than any humanity has ever known. You also cite a failure of integration that the US hoped that China and Russia would become responsible stakeholders, but in a US-led world, uh, they clearly had other ideas. That's right. I don't think either power really liked the idea of occupying the second tier of the global hierarchy in a world led by the United States. And that was arguably an oversight on the part of U.S. officials. We convinced ourselves that the liberal international order that we were promoting was so beneficial that everyone would buy into it, uh, even the Russians and the Chinese. I think it's that that oversight has become more and more apparent really over the course of about 15 or 20 years, and it's simply being thrown into sharper relief today. 
I mean, I just want to quote in passing, you know, I think that that great line, one of many from Churchill, in victory, magnanimity. Uh, And there is an an argument being made that actually the the US didn't know how to temper its language, uh, let alone its deeds, in that sense of sort of acknowledging that um, you're careful, you don't strut when you have won, and most definitely they did win um, at the end of the Cold War. That, that's a common critique, although I think it oversimplifies the problem. And so in, in certain ways, the United States was remarkably magnanimous after the end of the Cold War. It pulled Russia into the group of seven, a group that Russia really had no, no um, claim to being a part of. It, it tried to create a very close relationship between Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton. The United States was probably the foreign country that was most responsible for or most involved in China's astounding economic rise by shepherding it in to the international economic system. Now, we didn't do these things for all – exactly. And and the United States didn't do these things for altruistic reasons, and we often coupled them with policies that Russia and China really didn't like. But I I think it's misleading when some commentators argue that the United States basically pursued you know, only in an aggrandizing, exploitive policy after the end of the Cold War, because that just wasn't the case. Um, my guest, I'll just let listeners know, my guest is Professor Hal Brands, who's written this very interesting new book, The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today, a very pertinent uh, time to be uh, being released. Now, the you specifically mention the attacks of September the 11th, 2001, that the United States spent a decade focused on the Middle East rather than on rising geopolitical rivals or just ra- almost rather than the clearly the seething resentment that was building, which we're now fully grasping, I think. Um, how big a mistake has that decade turned out to be? Well, it's it's difficult to say that a focus on terrorism in the Middle East in a broad sense, was a mistake, given the trauma of 9-11 and the, and the danger that those uh, attacks represented. I, I think it's entirely fair to argue that certain U.S. policies, such as the invasion of Iraq, were mistakes. But but it definitely did have a distracting effect. And so prior to 9-11, the George W. Bush administration was planning its own pivot to Asia, which got waylaid as a result uh, of the Iraq War. And by the time the United States began to draw down in the Middle East uh, around 2010, 2011, uh, it, it had, those wars had been so costly and so draining that it left Americans less well, less well placed to respond to the emerging challenges by China and Russia. So there, there certainly was a significant strategic cost there. Yes, you have this very interesting observation. Long-term competition, which is different to short-term competition, and you make quite a lot of that, is a test of systems as much as statecraft. It's a measure of which political, social and economic model can best generate and employ power. And you go on to really... uh, tease out what undermines a nation's vitality in this long sort of marathon, I suppose, of, um, of, of a test in order to wage power. Now, the, uh, is, the, is the United States we see today capable of really wrestling with this level of uh, depth of what needs to happen? I think so. I think it'll be a challenge. Uh, but I think that just as the West system 
proved to be stronger than the Soviet system over the course of the Cold War, I'm, I'm more impressed with the strengths of the American system than I am with the Chinese or the Russian system today. I think Russia's weaknesses are obvious. Uh, it has a sluggish economy, demographic problems, and a variety of other internal strains. I think China's problems are perhaps more concealed, or at least we've paid less attention to them. But China's facing serious demographic pressures, uh, an economic slowdown that's been going on for about 15 years, uh, a growing debt burden, growing political strains as a result of Xi Jinping's centralization of power, and other problems that I think will make it very hard for China to remain competitive over the very long term. I don't want to downplay the threat. I think that the United States and its allies have some very difficult days ahead of them. But I do think we need to avoid the fatalism of assuming that we'll simply be unable to handle the challenge. Chinese behaviour, you write, is driven by ideology and geopolitics, insecurity and aggrandizement, the same potent cocktail that's energised rising powers throughout history. It's a pretty devastating old line uh, phrase, that. I think there really is a mix of, of motives that drive Xi Jinping. Uh, part of it is a historical sense that China deserves to be at the top of the international hierarchy. Part of it is the insecurity of an autocratic regime that has been living in a world led by a democratic superpower. Part of it is just the age-old story of a country that becomes more ambitious as it becomes more powerful. And then part of it, of course, has to do with personality. And Xi Jinping has really put into overdrive a lot of the Chinese ambitions and assertiveness that we've seen uh, in recent it's years. It's restoration so of dignity taken- too, isn't it? Yes, and I think the the reason that the Chinese use the term rejuvenation rather than rise is that they, they argue that they're simply returning China to its rightful place at the center of Asia and perhaps the world. Uh, and in fact, you know, China has seen itself, uh, to use a bit of an anachronistic term, as a superpower for a very long time. And it's really only in the past 150 years that it's fallen out of that status. And so when you put all these things together, it does create, a, as you mentioned, a very potent cocktail. Mm. Look, finally, um, you make the point that for two generations, it is worth remembering this, there were vast resources and intellectual energy uh, committed to competing with the Kremlin in the United States, militarily, economically, diplomatically, ideologically. And this was a huge effort. Could that be done now? And could I suggest, why not over climate change? This is one of the, this is a, talk about a clear and present danger for so many of us. Why could that not be uh, the the, the two-generational commitment that everybody buys into? So I think there is a possibility for a long-term commitment on the part of the United States. And I think the fact that we've seen the last two presidential administrations, one Republican and one Democratic, uh, embraced the idea of competition with China, indicates that we're, we're seeing a return of a competitive mindset that can last through changes in administration in the United States. With respect to the issue of, of climate change, I don't think it's an issue of either or. I think that the United States and its allies are going to have to do both. Uh, I think it would be a mistake, however, for the United States Uh, to say that um, we are so committed to dealing with the threat of climate change that we are willing to make concessions to China on geopolitical issues. That's what the Chinese would like us to do. It's what they've demanded. But I think it would be disastrous from the perspective of the security of the United States uh, and its allies, including countries like Australia. And so we're going to have to try to address 
um, uh, shared challenges within a competitive framework. And that's something that actually did happen during the Cold War, uh, whether it came to issues like arms control or dealing with uh, the threat that smallpox posed in a lot of countries in the global south. So there are precedents here that we can draw upon. And why the twilight struggle? Why don't you use that term? So John John Kennedy described the Cold War as a long twilight struggle in a speech that he gave in 1961. And the idea was that uh, twilight, twi- just as twilight is neither dark nor light, neither day nor night, the Cold War was neither war nor peace. It wasn't the sort of great power war that had occurred during World War II, but it certainly wasn't what Americans had traditionally thought of as peace because it required all sorts of exertions and commitments and expenditures that were typically associated with periods uh, of war. And so that was why the Cold War was a twilight struggle. It was neither fish nor fowl. And I think that's a very appropriate term in thinking about the U.S. relationships with China and Russia today. So not, yes, back to competition rather than collaboration. Um, All right. Look, very interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hal Brands uh, from the Johns Hopkins School of International uh, Studies, also the author of The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today, published by Yale University Press. Well, coming up, how the Australian Jewish community rallied to help save Holocaust survivors. Reevaluating historical events that we think we know well, but through a contemporary lens, can be an enlightening experience, especially those around war and its aftermath, as we've just heard. Take the Holocaust. Despite the unprecedented horror of that genocide, Western countries, including Australia, were reluctant to shift their refugee policies towards Jewish victims in the late 1940s and early 50s. Jewish communities had to take it upon themselves to organise the boats and the resettlement, insisting publicly and behind the scenes that no government money would be spent whatever on the rescue project. Well, in Australia, one determined couple, Leo and Minna Fink, led the charge and their legacy looms large over Australia's Jewish communities. But their story is also a case study into savvy lobbying that pivoted the modern word constantly when the odds turned against them. Historian Margaret Taft has written about them and she joins me now to talk about their remarkable efforts in Leo and Minna Fink for the greater good. She's here to tell us why they inspired her so much. Welcome. Thank you, Geraldine. Thank you for having me. Um, do, you, do you agree that uh, they were incredibly clever? I mean, they were both humanitarians as well, but they were smart in the way they prosecuted their cases against all odds. Absolutely. And I think that today we talk about people building resilience in order to overcome adversity. I think they were incredibly resilient. And one of the things that I look at is not just how savvy they were in their networking and how they built the right platforms by which they could both, during the war, work towards relief and then quickly pivot post-war towards resettlement. But I have to try to think about what really interested me was why. Why they did it. Why did they take it on? And that was the question that prompted me, really. And did you, I'm hopping over, I was going to come to this, but did you come to a conclusion? Well, I think 
that given the life experiences they had, and in the book I do delve in, go quite extensively into their early lives, they were deeply, deeply connected to the Jewish world and to Jewish humanity. They saw themselves as a link in the chain of that vast world, a world that had largely been obliterated in Europe, mm. and they saw it themselves as being part of that world. And it always intrigues me to think, why do some people run into the fire when everyone else runs away from it? What compels them to do that? Well, that's your point, that they were, li- <clears throat> they were living a very comfortable life. Um, yep. um, Polish. Leo was yes. Polish. What was Minna, by the way? She was also born in Bialystok. Oh, Bialystok. As was Leo. Oh. And they, she was 12 years his junior. And, and they'd come they, here pre-war. Well, he came here with his brothers in 1928. So we find them, uh, well, you start the book, mm. in March 1947 with yep. the arrival of this fascinating, you do make it live, I must say, the Johann de Witt, yes. a ship carrying around 700 Jewish refugees, and you describe yes. the incredibly emotional scenes as they're yes. greeted by members of the Australian Jewish community in the dock at Sydney Harbour. But... Australia had a pretty unfriendly attitude towards Jewish refugees. Yes. They'd yes. been here since the First Fleet, but there was a strict quota, wasn't there, for Jewish arrivals Correct. on boats? Correct. They were only allowed until, to be 25% yeah. of passengers. Correct. That was up until I think about 1949, and it was the, after some lobbying, the quota was lifted, but on a handshake agreement with the Minister of Immigration that Jewish immigrants would never exceed more than 3,000 in a year. And that was adhered to. So Leo Fink took on the immigration minister of the time, Arthur Corwell, yes. and yes. I might add the press. I mean, th- this yes. is what is so interesting. They really had to cope with pylons, didn't they, in, yes. in the late 40s yes. sense? Yes, yes, absolutely. Look, um, all governments, and it wasn't just the media and all, all governments have two things at their disposal, and it doesn't matter which political persuasion, two things. They can control the number of immigrants that come in and they can control the type of immigrant that comes in. And all countries do it. And in the post-war period, when Australia was embarking on a very audacious and bold immigration plan to grow grow the population, mainly because... The war, the war had exposed its, Australia's vulnerability and we needed to be able to defend ourselves and we had to grow the economy. So, And to do that, you couldn't do it through natural growth. You needed a high number of immigration. So there were certain deals that Australian government did strike with other countries and refugee organisations. They never supported Jewish immigration. Hmm. So that platform had to be taken on by the Jewish Welfare Society and by individuals themselves. And, of course, he had to go elsewhere to get more support. But uh, he really... He was a bit <laughs> naughty with uh, Corwell. He he sort of yes. he gambled in a way because there had yes. already been one before that a ship which had caused yes. a lot of fuss. Yes. yes, and he just took the the risk really that he'd be yes. able to talk Corwell around. He took the risk because he was a, he was a very calculated risk taker. He knew Corwell very well. He had a very good working relationship with Corwell. Corwell had, in 1946, agreed to a humanitarian visa and he allowed 2,000 
um, Jewish survivors to come in. Then it was getting a bit too, you know, obvious. And you've got to remember that Corwell had good relationships with the Jewish community. His own electorate took in Carlton, which was a site of Jewish immigration since the 1870s, or a site of settlement. So he he also was a very politically savvy operator, and he really didn't want to upset his own um, party. He didn't want to get people offside. He didn't want to provoke anti-Semitism. And he really, well, you know, he wanted to bring in a type of immigrant that he thought would uh, fit in. A blonde European. The blonde bolts. They were known as Corwell's blonde bolts. Mm. And Jewish immigrants just were thought to be too clannish that they wouldn't want to necessarily work the land. They wouldn't go out and work on the projects that they would stay within their own communities and they just weren't the type of immigrant that the, that the government had in mind. So this is even, and, and we weren't alone. In fact, we took about 10,000 Jewish people between 1933 and 40 and 45, more than Canada. Correct, and, correct, um, correct. Britain, absolutely. You know, the huge Britain and US took tens of thousands each. But the, so this reaction to the Johan de Witt is even despite the Nuremberg trials, it had a lot of coverage at the time, so it wasn't as if people weren't aware. Uh, yes, but of... the Nuremberg trial, the International Military Tribunal, was not a, was not a trial about the Holocaust. No, no, true. All. I suppose that's true. Because, and in fact, that's the whole argument about that the German people didn't really fully face a lot of the Holocaust yes, re- until right. um, uh, the Eichmann trial in 61. Correct. <laughs> Correct, correct, correct. Uh, absolutely. So, so what, when you look at it all and you've yep. absorbed yourself in it, um, like the antipathy that was stirred up, pretty some pretty striking stuff coming from people all around Australia, um, what, does it, what does it tell you about attitudes to Well, I think Jewish we've got to put, first of all, put a little bit of perspective on that. There were no pogroms in Australia. And people like Leo and Minna, who had lived in Bialystok, for the first 19, 20 years of their life, had experienced pogroms, had experienced devastation, had experienced systemic anti-Semitism that wasn't sanctioned by government. This was not the case in Australia. Oh, you couldn't join the Melbourne Club, but I don't think they would have worried too much about that. And seeing, seeing um, you know, anti-Semitic cartoons in newspapers and that, well, I don't think... I don't think they saw it as a huge concern to their existential existence. I suppose they and were just so re- relieved to be a long, well, long, long way from Europe. Well, well, one of the things that Leo encountered when he and his brothers arrived in 1928, you know, mm. it was a, it was an interesting and dynamic year, even though it was on the, the cusp of the Great Depression. You know, you could get a free education. You could join the civil service. You could own property. You could um What, you as could a Jewish person, fa- you mean? As a Jewish person. Oh, um, you couldn't do that elsewhere, couldn't you, necessarily? Not necessarily. And, in, and well, it and is an interesting that you make the point that um, that in that question that was on the immigration forms, are you Jewish, Jewish wasn't correct. removed until the 1950s. Correct. By 1954 it was removed, at which time most of the Holocaust survivors had already arrived and they knew that... Well, it was put in, it was ironically put in, it was put in place so that they could, in fact, control, again, the number and type 
of immigrants that was coming in. And, um, and it wasn't removed until 1954, by which time the vast majority of, of Holocaust survivors who were going to come to Australia had already arrived. So they weren't going to be, they knew they weren't going to open the floodgates. Look, let me tell listeners that I'm talking to Margaret Taft, who's written a book about Leo and Minna Fink for the greater good, uh, and alerting us, I think, to a, maybe a slice of our own history that we're not particularly aware of. Let's go to their work, um, both sort of they got around the immigration authorities and they brought Jewish refugees here all very much mass, massively helped by American Jewish philanthropy. Yes. Um, yes. You make the point, that's critical. Then they were very important in helping the s- survivors manage in Australia after they yes. after the war. But it wasn't enough to just get them here. Uh, th- yes. There were so many sort of pressing um, needs. Well... They could bring well. They once they brought them here, they had to be make sure that they wouldn't be a burden on the state for five years. Now there was no shortage of job opportunities in the post-war period, but there was a huge, huge housing shortage. So they had to make sure that they could house them, find them employment, edu- help educate them, help them with any kind of medical needs that they that they had. So they had to also act as what they called sponsors. So there were individual sponsors. Now, Leo and Minna sponsored people individually, large numbers of people, and would help to find them employment. But the Organisation of Jewish Welfare got the government's approval to act as a corporate sponsor. So they could, under the guise of welfare, bring people out to Australia. And, of course, even though Australian jury was... was, Australian Jewry is a very small, we're mm. a very small community. We've, we've never been more than 0.5 of 1% of the entire Australian population. We occasionally, we drop down to 0.4 or 0.3, never been more than 0.5. So to bring in a huge number of immigrants and to be able to sustain them. Because it doubled them, the Melbourne Jewish population, didn't it, the numbers? It did. Mm. It doubled it. But in, in relative terms, when you look at the number of immigrants that came, over a million immigrants that came to Australia up until 54, uh, about 1% were, were Jewish. Jewish. Mm, 17,000, yes. I think. Look, Correct. What, what is really interesting is the challenge from Israel itself. So in 1948, the new and growing community in Australia here really faced a bit of a sort of a huge dilemma. Israel had been established, you know, allegedly a safe haven for Jews around the world. Were people here torn about whether they should be here or there? I think think there was some... Feelings about, and and, and I, I think I mentioned it in this in the book that there was this debate about, well, do we go? Shouldn't we? You know, we've got limited resources. Shouldn't we be, you know, putting it into establishing a state of Israel? And there were a couple of few people who would say, well, why are we bringing the survivors here when they should all be going to help build a new a new land for the future? Now, Leo Fink was much more pragmatic. He believed that Jewish survivors had the right to choose where they wanted to go. And he also believed that by building a Jewish community in Australia, you were enriching the community here. It wasn't just about restoring the lives of survivors. It was also terribly important about enriching a small, potentially vulnerable community here in Australia. Now, let me ask you a tricky question. Um, 
Do many of the people you know who are maybe sort of um, descendants of that group, do they talk about the other side of the Israeli story, the Palestinians, another sort of beleaguered community? Is, is, does oh, that yes. come up? We're a very diverse community. We, 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 there is always debate. I mean, we, we, for, for, of course there is. And, and, and there are many organisations that work tirelessly towards a sort of re-bringing um, together um, that what is good for both the Palestinians and for the for the Israelis. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're, and, and there are different points of view about it. We're a very diverse community. We're not a homogeneous community mm. in that. We don't sort of undertake group think <laughs> or anything like that. So, yes, there is diverse opinion Look. and there are those who are much more supportive of Israel and there are those that are not and there are those that um, see it as... as perhaps a, a binary sort mm. of situation. Look, before I let you go, um, Minna's work was distinguished eventually from her husband's uh, after working side by side with him. He, in fact, did go to Israel. She yes. actually, her focus shifted towards feminism and after Leo died, she established the Holocaust Museum. Correct. Um, I, I wonder what you think the modern Australian Jewish community thinks about the, the Finks. Like, how would they describe you you're you, you're sort of completely staggered by their degree of resolve but i wonder is that is that a general feeling i think for people who know the fink story or know aspects of the fink story they're not surprised i think that um i think i wanted to bring to light the fullness of their story so that other people can be enlightened a little bit about what can happen, the strength and power of individuals to change a world. And I think that's really what's I think I wanted to bring to the fore. So I think that they're intrigued by the story. Many people will say to me, oh, I knew, I've heard about the Finks, like I grew up knowing the name Finks, but I didn't really know everything that they had done or, more importantly for me, why they had taken it on. And, you know, Minna's last years where she goes sort of back to her work in the Holocaust is really, really about educating against the lessons of racism, the lessons of bigotry, the lessons of what ha- where these things can lead. And they led to a genocide and they led to this, you know, the word genocide was, was unknown until about 1947. Yes. That- so I think our, our view of what the Holocaust is now, I think is very much about education, commemoration, memory and I think very much about educating against, not just for Jews, but against all, you know, minority groups. Um, And I think the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne does an outstanding job in, in that way. All right. Well, look, you've certainly done them proud. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Margaret Taft. And thank you, Geraldine. That was wonderful. Thank you. And Margaret Taft, uh, Leo and Minna Fink for The Greater Good, Monash University Publishing. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doob. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.